from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Missourians resoundingly picked Attorney General Eric Schmidt to be their next U.S. Senator. And during his victory speech in Maryland Heights, the GOP statewide official declared that his win was a signal that voters here don't like President Joe Biden or his agenda. We won the election, but we did more than that. We sent a message to Joe Biden that enough is enough. We want our country back. But to call Tuesday a complete victory for Missouri Republicans would be a bit of a stretch. Missouri Democrats gained ground in the Missouri House, and Democrat Tracy McCreary prevailed in the highly competitive 24th District Senate race in St. Louis County. The voters in this district are very thoughtful, highly educated voters, and I think they were able to sort through all of the information they were, were receiving, both positive and negative, on, on about both candidates, and they were able to sort through it all. This was a complicated election, both on a state and local level. And St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and Sarah Kellogg join me on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to make sense of the results and talk about how they impact future elections. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me on this beautiful Wednesday morning after the 2022 general election is St. Louis Public Radio's justice correspondent, Rachel Lipman, and St. Louis Public Radio's state house and politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. This was a weird election, guys. It was a weird election nationally, and I think it was a weird one in Missouri. What do you, what do you guys think? I don't know that it was that weird in Missouri. I mean, if we're defining weird as unexpected, I don't think there was much that was unexpected about the results in Missouri. Yeah, I think going in, we kind of had an idea of pretty much everything but about three races or so. And so yeah. I think it went as expected, but it definitely, like, of those on toss-up, it would have been super interesting to see if how some of them would have gone. Well, yeah. we're going to get into maybe why I feel it was strange as we trudge along on this energetic podcast <laughs> on the day after the election. This is what happens when we're all up until 3 o'clock in the morning or later. <laughs> so the, the main story, I think, is that Attorney General Eric Schmidt won pretty easily over Democrat Trudy Bush Valentine. I'm going to be brutally honest. This race was over when Schmidt won the primary. Everybody, even Democrats, knew that. And I think that the question was going to be what the margin was going to was going to be and whether Schmidt would win by like what he did, which was around 13, or whether it would be like 20 and it would result in down ballot Democrats uh, being crushed. Well, and you have to wonder, like, would uh, Lucas Coons have done better, too? There's also like what ifs of like the, the Trudy Bush Valentine of it all, too, of, as a candidate. We'll certainly talk about that in a bit, but before we do, here is a little bit of U.S. Senator-elect Eric Schmidt's victory speech in Maryland Heights. It's about your families and your jobs 
in your dreams in the future of this great country. Tonight is about all the regular, hard-working Missourians who've suffered the last two years, those who've been left behind, people who work hard every day and want their children to inherit America they've known and loved. These folks are the heart and soul of America, and I will be their champion in the United States Senate. Rachel, you and I have covered Eric Schmidt in some capacity since he burst into the state legislative arena in 2009. Were, were you surprised he made it to this point where he's going to be a U.S. senator? Not really. Um, I think it was pretty evident once he got into a statewide office that he had ambition to go further. I think there are very, very... I won't say very few politicians, but there's always a certain type of politician where you know they aren't content to just be in their little corner of Missouri. They, you know, want to go further. They want to have an additional role. And I think he was one of the champions and the lead champion, actually, of municipal court reform. And I think once he got that attention on that issue... It's hard to not want that. And the only way really in politics, especially with term limits, to get that attention is to keep seeking higher office. Now, Trudy Bush Valentine conceded, I think, around 930 or 10 last night. Here is a clip from her concession speech. Many of us are feeling scared right now. We're worried about Missouri's future and the future erosion of our rights. We feel discouraged because we work so hard. I have learned so much because all of you have taught me so much. And for that reason, I'm never going to give up on Missouri. Missouri is my home, and we fight for our home. So Trudy Bush Valentine spent millions of dollars during this campaign to win the primary over the aforementioned Lucas Kuntz. And Spencer Toder. And, and Spencer Toder. And and. She also spent a lot of money during the general election hitting Schmidt on his support for Missouri's abortion ban. And also, as we'll talk about in a minute, this bill that he supported in 2013 that repealed the foreign ownership of farmland. It was widely seen as a way for Smithfield, which had been bought by a Hong Kong based company, to continue existing in in Missouri. But she's lost by 13. Would another Democrat have done much better? I'm not convinced that I'm not convinced of that. What do you guys think? I I think that is a big kind of what if. I think part of, you know, maybe other opponents maybe doing better is that they got into the race earlier. I mean, Bush Valentine put in her name for the primary the last possible day she could. So she and through spending money basically got to where she was. But that's a lot of time where she could have been knocking on doors, where she could have been meeting potential candidates. So I think that the other candidates that did get in there, put their hat in the ring first, you know, may have done better. I think there also was a major enthusiasm gap between Republicans for their candidate and Democrats for their candidate. Agreed. You know, it's it's Kuntz, Toter, they went out, they worked their doors, they worked hard for it. Bush Valentine did not generate that level of enthusiasm. And you have to have a candidate you're enthusiastic about to get out to vote in the counties where you know the Democrats aren't going to win, but you have to keep down the margins in order to let the blue dots do their work. Now, that is a great segue, Rachel, into the reason Trudy Bush Valentine lost pretty decisively. She did pretty good in St. Louis County. I think she got 61 percent of the vote. She actually did decently 
in Platte and Clay counties, although Schmidt won both of those counties. This is, that's on the Kansas City side. Won those pretty narrowly. But she got absolutely crushed in rural Missouri. And I'm going to play a clip now from Gay Phillips. She is from Palmyra, Missouri. She's one of the people who I interviewed for my story about how Northeast Missouri became so Republican. And I think that this really hits on the reason why, even though Trudy Bush Valentine really tried to hit Schmidt really hard on the foreign ownership of farmland issue, why it was not going to work. I was talking to this gal the other day and I said something about on the news, you know, I don't even know what we were actually talking about that day because her response to me is, the only thing I listen to is Tucker Carlson. Tucker knows what's going on. And I'm, I just, I, I think my mouth probably dropped open and I just looked at her because I was like, you don't listen to any other news outlet except Tucker Carlson? She goes, no, he knows everything. And I'm, okay. I think that rural Missouri voters are are so influenced by conservative media and dislike the National Democratic Party so much that there is literally nothing that a Missouri Democrat can do to convince them to vote for them. What do you guys think? I think you're probably right. And that's when it comes to getting those voters who may lean toward the Democratic Party out to vote and making them feel like they have a reason to contribute. I think one of the Missouri Democratic Party's biggest problems is that they focus on the blue dots, but forget that the other half of the equation to turning out voters in the blue dots to try and win statewide. And blue dots would be those cities along 70, St. Louis, Boone, uh, County, Columbia area, Kansas City, and then a little bit down in Springfield and Greene County. That to make that work, that strategy work, you can't be completely blown out of the water in rural Missouri. And they've got to figure out a way to get trusted messengers there, maybe not to change minds, but to get you know, the, the the population of Democrats in these counties is not zero. You just have to get them to turn out and make them feel like the party cares about them and cares about their interests. And, you know, was the foreign ownership of farmland attack from Trudy Bush Valentine effective? Probably not, no, because I, those aren't the issues I, that those voters are necessarily caring and about. And before Sarah jumps in, I will tell you why it wasn't effective. I actually talked to farmers who were Democrats about this issue. And the, you know what they told me? that farmers do not care if Smithfield exists, if it does not affect their bottom line and it affects their ability to farm. And I don't think that Democrats who have been trying to use that message to attack Republicans understand that. They can't connect with people and and convince them that this is something that's actually going to affect their lives. And that strategy is kind of in the wheelhouse of convincing Republicans to vote Democrat and what you need to do is convince voters to come out and vote. People who just aren't voting. It's not necessarily swaying. It's just convincing people, like you said, Rachel, that it's important enough for them to get out and vote. And we don't know if they're a Democrat or Republican because they haven't been to the polls in how many years. And and I think also, yeah, just not necessarily campaigning super hard in these rural, rural areas, but just, yeah, going, saying, introducing yourself, just having a presence. You can't just give up on those areas. And listening to what they are saying. You know, yes. something told the strategists working on Trudy Bush Valentine's campaign that that was a winning issue. Who were they talking to? What were those strategists telling them? And as you said, it's clearly very different than what Democrats in these areas actually wanted to hear. Now, be that as it may, 
I did tweet something out this morning, and I'm going to read it verbatim. While Bush Valentine lost last night, several Dems have pointed out that her 61% showing in St. Louis County likely helped people like Tracy McCreary and House Dems who are facing tough races. So what I'm referring to is that Tracy McCreary won the highly watched 24th District Senate race against George Haruza, and House Democrats gained what? Four seats? Five seats? Four or five, yeah. So I'm going to play a clip now from Tracy McCreary, and then we'll we'll talk about Bush Valentine's uh, effect on these races. For decades, we've known that democratic values are shared by Missourians. So I think that this shows that, you know, that there are voters out there who realize that the values that they care about, like supporting public schools, supporting working families, making sure we take care of the environment, making sure that we support first responders, including police and fire, those are democratic ideals. And I think the voters are starting to connect democratic candidates with those shared values. So Rachel, you and I were talking very early in this morning that you think that Bush Valentine getting 61% is basically like a baseline and is not should not really be seen as something spectacular or special. Yeah, uh, and I stand by that analysis. I mean, if you look at the 2020 presidential election, Joe Biden polled about 60, 61% in St. Louis County, and Bush Valentine actually over outperformed the other Democratic candidates in the rate in, you know, who were on the ballot across the board. Now, did she help in maybe some specific areas like Tracy McCreary? Sure. But I think it's one of those things where, you know, the 2020 presidential race and the 2022 U.S. Senate race were ones where parties were not likely to cross. You were not likely to see a diehard Democrat in St. Louis County vote for Eric Schmidt, and you were unlikely to see a diehard Democrat in St. Louis County vote for Donald Trump. But we saw diehard Democrats vote for Mark Montavani. Well, yes, and we'll talk about that race. However, (laughs) that's an incredibly different scenario than, you know, Mark Montavani, Sam Page are very, very different candidates, which is why I think the 60, 61 percent represents about a ceiling for the Democrats in St. Louis County. And I think, yeah, maybe with Tracy McCreary's race, Bush Valentine's performance might have made a difference. But I think a lot of the difference for the Democratic pickups was redistricting and new districts. I mean, Boone County alone had two new districts, basically, that were Democratic. Not They performed incredibly well for Democrats. Springfield pick up another seat. Those were new districts. There was another one in Kansas City. So I think that actually played probably a larger role than, than Bush Valentine. Now, I, I think that House Democrats have every reason to be elated and very proud of themselves by this. Like there were expectations that if there had been a red wave, which really hasn't materialized very much nationally, that there was talk that, you know, people like Representative Robert Sauls lose their seat and Representative Betsy Fogel Springfield lose. And they they won. But wait, let's 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 we gotta we gotta put this in perspective. Democrats, both on a legislative level and with Bush Valentine, did not make any noticeable gains in suburbs that are more conservative than St. Louis County. So they did they did terribly in Jefferson County. They didn't really make any gains in St. Charles County. They they didn't make any gains in Buchanan County or, or Cass County or or, or or elsewhere either. And I, I, I think until they do that, they're not going to win statewide elections. And these types of results are noticeable because they build kind of momentum to the next election. But this is not enough to win a statewide election. And were we expecting that, though, with a midterm? I mean, 
very famously, it goes to the opposing party than the presidency. So I think it had Democrats made huge gains in Missouri on a midterm year. That would have been, I mean, I think the significant gains they made is a lot to kind of open the eyes of those new districts. You would have seen results from the East Coast looking a lot differently if you wanted to see, I think, Missouri make substantial, the Missouri Democratic Party make substantial gains in the state house race. And that's just not going to happen in a midterm election. Now, let's scale back from candidates for a second and talk about the ballot initiative. So first of all, let's, before we talk about the big one, um, going through some of the, 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 the lesser high profile ones, or I should just say lower profile, lesser high profile is kind <laughs> of redundant. So Amendment 1, which involved like investing in state funds, failed, right? Yeah. That was, I honestly wasn't quite sure how that one was going to go. I think part of it, I mean, when the legislature voted to put it on the ballot two years ago, overwhelmingly yes. Like, it was almost unanimous. I think there was one no vote for it. Um, but they turned around. I, I, I'm not quite sure why it was a no. Um, I think part of it might have seen the ability for the legislature to have more power on investments, and they were like, mm, I don't know if I like that. Yeah. I, I think that might have been the sunken ship more than the municipal bonds. And I think it was also, too, a lot of people were sort of reluctantly yes on it. I think there were a lot of Democrats, especially, who were reluctantly yes, and then eventually were like, you know what? No, I think we would rather have these rails and these safeguards up there where the legislature, you know, can't insert itself into the issue. And I think they were okay with the municipal bond side of it. But the more they started thinking about the legislature having control over where they invest its money, it was that's when they pulled back. Mm -hmm. And voters approved a change to the so-called Hancock Amendment that would require Kansas City to put 25 percent of their budget for police. It wasn't a Hancock issue, was it? I think it's because it's a state. It's a a constitutional issue. You can't basically dictate how. Uh, municipalities can uh, spend their money. And so municipalities cannot have unfunded mandates. So they had to put this in the Constitution to say you have to have 25 percent. Basically, there was a bill passed and then there was a company amendment. So they would authorize this law that was passed. I'm not surprised that passed. I I believe that the Missouri National Guard, too, will have its own department as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will say also with the Kansas City, it was also worded very, very vaguely. So people didn't realize it was only Kansas City specific. So, of course, people were going to say, oh, yeah, of course, they think should have more funding for police. So I think that that was worded was very interesting worded and and worded so it done deliberately yes absolutely and And then yeah now we're going to have a new department of the national guard that passed i guess way easier than i thought it was i didn't think it was going to be i thought it would pass i didn't think it was going to sail 60 percent is quite a bit so and no constitutional convention by Uh, the way thank goodness i didn't want to cover that okay so we got through all of those because i didn't want to i think people were probably genuinely wondering about those but i wanted to put those first because the big news is that i guess come sometime next year Missouri will be one of the states in this country that will offer up cannabis for adult use. Mm -hmm. This was a pretty close vote. There was a lot of opposition to this. We had the pro and the con side on politically speaking. Sarah, why do you think this ended up passing? I think it was a lack of a what's next if it failed. So, I mean, there was a lot of vocal opposition because they were saying that Missouri deserved a better amendment. And there was a lot of problems, again, with you know, possible penalties for possession, penalties for uh, smoking in public. There are a lot of like things that weren't they said that wasn't actually legalizing. Now, John Payne, campaign manager, said part of those limits exist because it still is a federally prohibited substance. So like I, I, I can see why that would be in place. But I think that the no vote 
it's, it's voting no, but wanting recreational marijuana means I have to either trust the Missouri legislature to do it, or I want I believe that in two more years it's going to be on the ballot again. So that's at least waiting probably two years. I mean, the legislature says they have maybe the momentum to do it, but can't it, yeah, it's the it's a Republican led Missouri legislature. I don't think people were wanting to wait. So the the other argument against Amendment 3 was that this was essentially a sweetheart deal for existing license holders for medical marijuana facilities. And the counter question that I asked opponents of Amendment 3 is, if I'm a Missourian that really wants to purchase cannabis legally, do I really care about that? Or do I just want to go to a dispensary and get marijuana or an edible? And I think that the answer to that question is that majority voters really don't care yeah. about how that's structured. And that just was not a compelling argument to vote this down. They didn't. Maybe they didn't know. I yeah. mean, part of it is, you know, this is if this is pitches like an equity issue and saying, you know, that it's usually black individuals, black men especially, who get penalized for uh, um carrying marijuana, then uh, the community of color should also benefit from the financial boost that comes from recreational marijuana use. And if you are dedicating it to groups that already exist, that have already had the capital, Illinois ran into the same issue with theirs. They were supposed to have equity licenses, and that's just been a whole mess. So, you know, do they care? No, but do they also know to care, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Now, before we go to break, um, one of the things that I kind of pushed back on in 2018 was this argument that medicinal marijuana was a Democratic issue and that Democrats only supported it. And if you looked at the numbers, it passed with well over 60 percent of the vote, which meant that Republicans were voting for this, too. And I haven't scanned through all the numbers on Amendment 3, but I know it passed in Jeffco and St. Charles County. And those are counties that voted for Eric Schmidt. And, and I've gotten a little pushback about this by, by, from, from people who are like, well, you know, Missourians support progressive ballot issues because of like minimum wage and getting rid of right to work and Medicaid expansion. I, I think with this specific issue about legalizing marijuana, I think it has bipartisan appeal. I think that people's feelings about this have changed. And I think that this, the, the votes on this kind of showcase that. I mean, look at the legislature. They did have the Cannabis Freedom Act, which was a bipartisan amendment. I think you're right that attitudes have changed over it. And I think, again, it was a harder sell than medical, for sure. Like, the margins were a lot closer. Again, part of that were because there are people who were for legalization that did not like this amendment. But I think that definitely the times have changed where it's not as taboo or as, as scandalous. I think it's also money. I mean, let's yeah. be completely honest. You're looking at all of the states and... You know, I know people who go to Illinois to purchase cannabis recreationally there. You may not want to do it yourself, but you still want some of that sweet, sweet cash. On that note, we'll be right back after this quick break with more analysis of the 2022 midterm elections. And we're back on Politically Speaking with St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and Sarah Kellogg. We are talking about the results from the 2022 election, and we're going to talk about Local elections, yeah. which which Tell I think. you, Rachel. Which, no, I'm, I'm excited. Here we go. So Sam Page won re-election. Yes, he but did. But as we talked about at the, the first part of the show, the margin was not impressive. Not at all. 51 percent, I think. 51 and a half. Something yeah. like that. And again, 
I'm not trying to sound like I am uh, being mean to Sam Page, but if Trudy Bush Valentine is getting 61% and you're getting literally 10 percentage le- points less than her, that means a lot of Democrats don't like you. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think a lot of Democrats don't like Sam Page, and they had in Mark Montavani a candidate who they felt like he could support, that, who felt like they could support. He ran twice as a Democrat in the uh, primaries in both 2018 and 2020, so the third time was not the charm for him, but he tried. And, you know, I think he was able to make the case to Democrats disaffected by Sam Page that He's not going to betray them on issues that are important to them socially. And he's mentioned several times that is not the role of the St. Louis County executive to get involved in federal policy issues around uh, the uh, individual's right to terminate a pregnancy, around uh, racial elements, same-sex marriage, etc., he was always focusing on making a county that worked for everyone. And for a lot of people who, for whatever reason, have soured on Sam Page, that's a compelling message. And they trusted Montevani to, you know, not all of a sudden turn around and swing and say, oh, actually, I am going to endorse a ban on abortions in St. Louis County. That being said, with Dennis Hancock beating Vicki England in the third district county council race, we, we have the exact situation that we've had for the last two years where Sam Page is not going to have a functioning majority on the council. We also, there's a little bit of nuance that actually hurts Sam Page here. We keep, I, I we cannot assume that Ernie Trachis is going to be with Sam Page on every issue. He clearly wasn't. So he could hypothetically have five people against him at certain points and his veto being overridden. So this is a, I think this is a pretty bad result for Sam Page. He still gets to be county executive, but I think he has to be more conciliatory to Councilwoman Rita Days and Shalonda Webb and work with them more if he wants to get anything done. I think it's going to depend on the issue as to whether uh, Councilwoman Days and Webb would stay with Page. They are still Democrats. When we had Rita Days on the podcast, we asked her, you know, will you support the Democratic nominee for county executive, even if it is Sam Page? And she said, yes, Yes. I am a Democrat. Mm -hmm. I will vote for him. So depending on the issue... I think you still hold that 4-3 majority. Days is not going to turn on Sam Page if it is an issue that is of importance to the Democratic Party. And I think also without COVID and without the Michigas and craziness and ridiculousness around it, things may settle down a little bit. I don't think you're going to run into the same issues of Page issuing public orders going around the council in that way. There may be other issues that pop up where he alienates the council, but I think you have removed a major um, irritant that existed. And it probably will go out a lot for three. I think some of Trachis's opposition was occasionally to Tim Fitch. Those two distinctly did not like each other. And now with Tim Fitch having, you know, stepped down, he was drawn out of that district, not maliciously. His house was always on that border. He decided he was done. It's, you know, now Dracus will not have his reliable foe in Fitch. Now let's move to the city, though, where we we have this bizarre situation where there was a election for the Board of Aldermen president but they only get to serve for five months, and it was won by Megan Green, alderwoman from the 
former 15th ward. Still I, technically, I think, the 15th ward. She's serving. She was the 15th ward alderwoman. It'll be the new 6th ward, but yes. And then she defeated Jack Coder, who was in the 7th ward, pretty decisively. And 55, it was 45 it, yeah. and, and we got to point this out. This is a higher turnout compared to what we will likely see in March and April. So 100%. I don't think that Coder can argue that, oh, he lost because all the green supporters came out and nobody else did. This was actually that was one of the reasons this was so unusual, Rachel. That's correct. Yes, you um, have. I don't think there has ever I don't know for certain that there has never been a November general election for St. Louis Board of Aldermen president, but it is a rarity that the midterm cycle lines up with the Board of Aldermen cycle. So, but as I mentioned before, this is to fill out the final months of former Board of Aldermen President Lewis Reed's term. And uh, President-elect Green alluded to the fact that she's going to have to start running again pretty soon during her victory party. So before I close this out, i got to have one ask. And this is going to sound really weird. Make it, girl. We got you, Madam But we got to make it. We got you. I know we just did this, but filing is going to open again in two weeks. And so we have campaign staff that is going to be circulating with petitions that we need you to sign to get me back on the ballot. What is she going to do in five months that's going to matter, Rachel? I don't know. Um, It's five months on the calendar, but in Board of Aldermen time, it's nine meetings. She will not, the election will not be certified in time for her to be sworn in on Thursday. The Board of Aldermen usually meets on Friday. They're meeting Thursday this week because of the Veterans Day holiday. So she'll be sworn in on the 18th. They go down for winter break in December, and then they go down for the uh, municipal election break in February. Um, And there's going to be a learning curve here. Uh, The board president role, yes, has the ability to set the legislative agenda, but you also have to run the meetings. And there is a lot of procedure to know. There is a lot of, you know, steps that you need to remember to take and the order of business. If she does push aside staff um, who, you know, like them, love them or hate them, have been running meetings with Lewis Reed since he was elected to his since he had been elected to that office. And aldermen, alderwomen can be petty. People who want to can really make her look bad in the role of board president by calling for points of order, criticizing her management of the meetings. I'll be very interested to see how the expectation of her supporters as to what she can do in this role collides with the reality of nine meetings Uh, In her term, in her first term. Now, the other unusual thing about this race is it was a it was a citywide race between two white candidates in a city with a sizable black population. And State Representative Lakeisha Bosley expects that an African-American candidate will file for this seat. 
And this is what she had to say on a previous episode, politically speaking, about that exact issue. I mean, I, I think that they definitely will have a challenge. Uh, whoever wins um, will have a challenge if a qualified black candidate gets into the race. I mean, myself personally, I am definitely hoping for that um, because I believe in representation and I believe in seeing people who identify with the city and who make up the city in those positions. I keep bringing up State Senator Carla May as a possibility for a couple reasons. No? I I don't know. I I just think that she's really good right now at, like, pulling and taking issues that are affecting her district and bringing them to the Senate. Would she cut her Senate term short? Well, here's the reason why she may want to. Okay, first of all, she's one of the few African-American officials in St. Louis who has appeal both in North and South St. Louis based off their 2018 race. The second is just about the demographics of the city. She will probably win the north side if she ran. And I think that she would have a good chance of winning the southwest side because Megan Green has never done well in either one of those places when there's a black candidate. Your wild card here is the mayor. Your wild card in this Board of Aldermen race is Mayor Tashara Jones. She was on stage last night with Megan Green. She introduced Megan Green as Madam President. And we do need to note that Green is the first woman to hold the role of board president in the city's 200 plus year history. Does she drop someone whom she was strongly supportive of, knocked doors for, was on stage with solely because a black candidate steps into the race? That, I think, would amount to a serious betrayal of the progressive bloc that pushed them both into office. That also obviously raises the question of whether the mayor remains a um, a trusted messenger in North St. Louis. But I think you you do have to take that into account as to, you know, yes, a black candidate may jump into the race, but does the mayor's support of Megan Green neutralize the advantage that a black candidate would hold in North St. Louis? I, I think it remains to be seen. And by the way, I don't have any inside information that Senator May may or may not want to run for this, but I'm just kind of using her as an example as somebody who could run effectively. And I think that there are a number of other black officials in St. Louis City who could chart the same course. Um, I'm mentioning her, though, that because her mom was on the board of aldermen, I think she was the city register. And she just has really sharp political skills. So I think that if she decided to run, she would be a really serious candidate to take Megan Green out of that position. And I think it's not, that is not a commentary on future President Green's ability to do this job. I'm just saying that I don't think she's going to get a free pass. In no, I don't months. think she's going to get a free pass in, in five months either, because you also are going to be looking at ward reduction and aldermen are going to have to make decisions about whether they choose to run in their new wards, potentially against their colleagues, or whether they take a shot at a citywide office like board of aldermen president. So in the final minute or two that we have, I'm going to throw uh, a wild card question to all three of us. What is going to be one thing that we are all going to be looking for for the 2024 election, which basically starts right now? Sarah, you go first. Oh, I hate this question because we're done with this one. I like a month and not think about 2024. I mean, obviously, I'm going with a with a statehouse focus. I, I think one of the things I'm going to be looking for 
is that uh, it'll be the governor's race, right, in two years. So I'm going to be keeping a really close eye on the governor's race. Um, we're going to see if it's going to be Kehoe or Ashcroft who's kind of pulling through. And, I, and I'm curious to see, and talking about momentum and Democrats picking candidates, who they're going to go for. I think that I, I, I just have a feeling Coons might run again. Um, I just think that there's a lot of opportunity in a presidential year, which would, in theory, favor the incumbent. You never know. But I'm curious to see, like, Democrats are going to pick for that. Rachel. I'm going to um, take 2023 first and deal with Board of Aldermen. But when we look at 2024, I agree with Sarah. It's just who the Democrats put up for some of these races. Are there candidates who have anything close to a shot or is the bench just so weak that you run into, uh, you know, no offense to Mr. Green, he did step up, but do you run into an Alan Green situation for state auditor? The thing that I'm going to be looking for is whether there is a ballot initiative to repeal and or replace Missouri's abortion ban. And I think that if that does materialize, and I have heard that there are discussions about what that would look like, if that is paired with the general election in 2024. And the gubernatorial candidate is a woman. So I'm talking like Tracy McCreary, Lauren Arthur, Crystal Quaid, maybe Tashara Jones decides to be the gubernatorial candidate. Does that make the Democratic candidate more viable against somebody like Ashcroft or Kehoe, who are going to be supportive of it? Or do they run into the same problem that Trudy Bush Valentine ran into and they simply cannot put the coalition together to win a statewide race. That's what I'm going to be looking for. But you're right, Sarah. We need to get some sleep and we need to put this election <laughs> cycle behind us before we start talking about how $100 million is going to be spent in the Josh Hawley re-election. I have, like, session in two months, my guy. That's that's where all my energy is going for a little while. And I have filing for Board of Aldermen in two weeks. I'm so excited. Sleep is overrated. Great. I'm fueled on spite and caffeine at the current moment. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Rachel and Sarah. And thank you so much for your great work during the election cycle. And thank you to everybody else at St. Louis Public Radio. I'm talking about the editors, the other reporters, the digital team, our photographer, Brian Munoz, for for making this election cycle very memorable. And not only for me, but for you, the listeners and readers. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. <sighs> I'm not sure I want to publicize my Twitter account anymore, given what's going on there. But you can find me on Twitter still for now at J Rosenbaum. Rachel at R Lipman two P's two N's. Sarah Sarah K Kellogg, recent viral tweet haver, as of <laughs> right before Twitter probably will die. <laughs> Until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.